I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I'm sitting in a van next to a park watching some children play. I am going to apologize in advance because I'm feeling a little ornery today for a few reasons. Um, I think partially because I just spent four-ish days in the woods with no cell phone service. And we were camping by a river, the Susan River in Northern California, and... It was a pretty epic fucking spot. You don't find a ton of those on the van trip. There are definitely like some terrible spots, like last night sleeping in the Walmart parking lot. Uh, And then there are some good spots, and then there are some pretty excellent spots, the kind of spots you drop a pin and plan to come back to. This was definitely one of those spots... um, It was pretty isolated. There was an amazing trail right next to it. Great for biking and hiking. It used to be a railroad. I think it's called the Biz Johnson, Buzz Johnson Trail. Um, But they transformed the old train tracks into a trail. So it's relatively flat and uh, lots of trees and such. Um, And it was right on this river where... We didn't know this when we got there, but it was very active with muskrats and beavers. So you're sitting there by the river and it's quiet and the river's moving relatively slowly because just up ahead there are several beaver dams. And all of a sudden you just see a muskrat or a beaver swim by. Uh, There was like a muskrat clearly building something it would like come collect a bunch of grass and then swim it back to where i'm imagining it lived um it was fucking cool even beaver dams have you guys ever looked at a beaver dam that's like i don't think i had would have the knowledge or wherewithal to build something like that and these little beavers are chewing wood with their teeth And creating, like, this entire fucking ecosystem for themselves. Like, how do they know where to do that? How do they know it'll work? How do they know that their efforts are going to pan out the way that they want them to? Anyway, this, along with a lot of mosquitoes, was my life for the past four days. I'm literally covered in mosquito bites. I am delicious to mosquitoes. I have known this for my whole life. 
Uh, but I kind of refuse to put on like toxic bug spray. So I come out of the woods, just gnawed on still worth it. Anyway, I, we decided, okay, it's time to return to civilization, at least for a brief period of time and check our emails and post podcasts and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it's really hard. I know that sounds, I don't know, like I'm some sort of sensitive, privileged baby or something, but it's not even like ideologically or intellectually that it's hard to sort of re-enter civilization, although it's all of those things too, but energetically, it just feels like such an onslaught of toxic poison. Like it hurt. I feel like my body literally hurt yesterday coming back into the world. Um, and it's, it just made me angry that this is what we've been fed as far as options go, as far as normalcy goes. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault. It's just a series of events coalescing into the reality that we live in. And it really, I mean, I always, that's not true, not always, but definitely over the past few years, I've noticed that I've become more and more unable to feel comfortable amidst shopping malls and grocery stores and parking lots and <laughs> intersections. But the more time I spend away from it, the more I notice how unsustainable it is and how bad it feels. And I think we've just become so accustomed to this certain level of like nervous system stimulation or anxiety or stress that we truly don't know that it's hurting us or that there's something better because ooh, it's all we know. And I think we lie to ourselves a lot of like, oh, no, no, social media like doesn't bother me that much or no, screens don't really like affect me or no, it's I really enjoy shopping. I just think those things are lies. I, you know, and that's not to say we don't actually believe them to be true. I just think we don't know what it's like to be calm. We don't know what it's like to sit out by a river for four days. I mean, anyone who's been on any sort of like beach trip, you know, you can sort of feel that it's like your breathing changes. That's not meant to be like a one-off experience. That's how we were built. And then on top of all of this feeling, I come back and I watch um, uh, Sacred Cow, which is the movie that Diana Rogers, who uh, is featured on this episode, is coming out with along with a book by herself and Rob Wolf. Um, you can find links to pre-order the book uh in the description for this podcast. Um, but she sent over like a pre-release version of the film for me to watch. Um, and I was just crying. <laughs> uh, um, her work in the film and what you'll hear her talk about today is all about trying to explain and show and remind us how, animals, particularly cows, are vital to 
our ecosystem and how they're not the enemy and how we can put uh, these animals back on the land in a way that not only feeds us, but also helps to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, rebuild soil, and ultimately um, help the planet not fall into the big black hole ditch that it's falling at the moment. And I've been super passionate about this issue this issue being regenerative agriculture and all the sort of threads off from that for a really long time. If you haven't listened to my episode with Bobby Gill, I recommend doing that. It was uh, maybe episode 10-ish around there. It was at the beginning. And then I did another episode with um, the Parkers from Parker Pastures in Gunnison, Colorado last summer, also within this theme. Highly recommend going back and listening to those if this is a topic that you are interested in. Um, but I feel like, like most things in my life, things that I'm passionate about, I just become more and more, they become more and more intense for me, I guess. You know, one might think that once I realize something or learn something, that then there's like a calmness to which I feel like, okay, well, I know that now and I can relax. Uh, that doesn't really happen for me. I feel increasingly more invested and more passionate and more frustrated that it's so hard to get people to understand these things or to teach them these things or show them what they need to be shown in order to understand. There's a certain, especially with this, there's a certain level of common sense here to me you know, we used to have ruminant animals roaming grasslands, being hunted by predators. They were moving around. They were trampling the soil and the grass. They were eating the grass. They were shitting on the grass and pissing on the grass. And then they would move on because they were being chased by predators. And so that grassland would have the chance to regrow. And this process would continue and continue and continue. If you've ever planted a garden you recognize that in order for the soil to be fertile, it has to be fertilized with animal shit and it has to be worked. It has to be, you know, loose and packed. It can't just be hard dirt. This is what animals do on the land naturally. Now, of course, we've killed all the bison and we've removed or killed all the wolves, so we no longer have this process happening naturally. And we can't just put cows or bison back on the land and expect it to work because there are no predators. And so the process of putting predators back on the land, like, this is going to take a very long time. And so regenerative agriculture comes into play where we realize we need to feed people better quality meat because meat is healthy as long as it's raised and produced and killed in a just and sustainable or regenerative way so we can feed more people and we can use humans of which we have an abundance to move the animals along the land just as the predators used to do it's a win-win and that's just the food part then we have soil that sequesters carbon from the atmosphere which helps with CO2 emissions, which helps with global warming. It just, it makes sense. <laughs> and there's one scene in the film where 
there's some animal rights organization, I'm sure it's PETA or some offshoot of PETA that was protesting outside a butcher shop in this butcher shop in, I think it was in Berkeley. And first of all, I'm just like crying watching these people talk about their butcher shop to begin with. <laughs> like I'm crying watching people in their butcher shop for reasons that people don't think I'm crying. Normally it's because they're killing animals. And, and in my case, it's like, thank you for treating these animals in the right way and eating them. It's so good. Um, anyway, but this is like the cream of the crop when it comes to butcher shops, right? Everything's local within 150 miles. The animals have to be raised and killed within that Um uh, within that area and they're very big on education of their customers and they're clearly very passionate about what they do it's like we need more of these people and yet there are these animal rights people outside protesting their shop and dousing themselves in fake blood and wrapping themselves in plastic wrap and uh, lying outside the butcher shop to protest the killing of animals and i'm just watching this and this is a scene, obviously, that we've seen a hundred million times. You know, I, I've, I've had several close friends who are vegetarians. I was a vegetarian myself for a couple of years. I've watched all the films about the unethical treatment of animals and killing animals unjustly. I have all the information, you know. I've been on every side of this. And one of the butcher owners says, you know, like, to the, the protesters, like, can we just sit down and have a conversation? Because I feel like we probably have more in common than maybe you understand. Um, and at the end of the day, I don't think they got very far And the butcher shop basically said, like, well, what do we have to do to stop you from protesting? So they had to put some sign outside their shop that said, like, killing animals is unjust no matter how it's done. There's so much to say about this, so I'm not going to like paraphrase the entire movie because you're, you should watch it. Um, and obviously you're going to hopefully listen to this interview with Diana, but it just infuriates me how caught up we get in some sort of backwards reasoning and how lost we get inside untruths and how distracted we become from what we're actually doing. We become militant about a thing without thinking through anything. We completely neglect critical thinking. We just follow what other people are doing. We want to do good things. And we've heard through the grapevine that being a vegan is good. So we just do that. But we don't think about it. We don't do our own research. We don't go to a farm. I mean, that's the other thing, too. Like, we're sitting here on our computer screens trying to figure out, you know, what is the best thing for the planet. Like, go outside. There are more answers outside that you can gain just through the, their, the plants and the animals themselves than through studies. Like, what makes sense? What makes common sense? Shit makes me angry. Please, please support Diana and this work. It is vitally important. Um, I hope to continue to bring voice to this very important issue. 
even though it makes me cry and that I want to break things when I talk about it. Um, yeah, the other thing I wanted to say to in the same vein of frustration, I have a friend who I love and care about deeply who was talking to me about, um, capitalism and how capitalism has, you know, basically shown us that value comes from hard work and from output and from, you know, creation and, you know, that we need to sort of undo that and, and untangle that in order to recognize that, you know, rest is also valuable, that taking care of ourselves is also valuable. These are all true facts. However, and then there was some tweet that she specifically sent me that said, you know, I think there was someone saying, like, if you go to your shitty job from nine to five and then you just like come home and watch Netflix and complain about being broke, like that's your problem. You should spend that time at home doing something more productive and creative or you have no right to complain. You're not going to get anywhere. And then someone responded and said, like, isn't it fucked up that capitalism tells us that rest isn't like a valuable choice? I see both sides of this. I've known very personally, I've been in relationships with people who did just this, who worked a crappy job, came home and used their exhaustion from that crappy job that wasn't inspiring them to not do anything more inspiring. And it was a vicious cycle. I think it's very easy for us to take things that make sense, like, oh yeah, capitalism is the bad guy, in order to perpetuate our own laziness or complacency. Like, these arguments, I used to make these arguments to my therapist all the time. You know, I had, an, I had a smart, <laughs> very intellectual sounding thing to say to defend my choices all the time. And I think we, you know, we're lying to other people because we're lying to ourselves. And at this point in time, I find this particular issue potentially extremely damaging, right? Because on the one hand, I think with this sort of space opened up with coronavirus in order us, in order for us to figure out who we are, what we like to do, what really matters. I think within that, there's going to be rest. There's going to be self-care. There's going to be relaxation and calm in a way that maybe we haven't had it before. But rest and calm and relaxation, relaxation, just like jobs that we have to go to on a daily basis, both of those things can be used to perpetuate inaction. You know, anyone that wants to write or tries to write, including myself, recognizes there's always something else to do. Oh, I'm just going to finish that. Then I'll get to writing. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, I've got to finish this project and then I'll get to it. Oh, I'm going to do it later. And once you figure out you're in six different locations with six other different projects you're working on, you realize this has nothing to do with anything other than me avoiding writing. And I recognize there's the privilege piece here. I recognize that not everyone has the opportunity to like 
do the thing that inspires them and live the life they want to lead. But a lot of us do, and I really want to encourage those of you that do but haven't done it yet. Who are you helping by not doing it? How are you using, oh, but it's privileged for me to buy a van and drive around. So I'm just going to stay here stuck, uninspired, not doing anything. Who is that helping? It's not helping anybody. That's just another bullshit excuse. Leave the uninspiring situation you're in. Go live the, the life that you authentically are supposed to be living, which I guarantee will innately be helpful to others. It will innately inspire others because it's unique, because it's individual to you. I think, you know, I've been thinking about how every single person's like true authentic nature, if we can find that genuinely, is good for everyone and the planet. I don't think anyone's like true authentic nature is something that harms or hurts anything. It's just really, really hard to get quiet enough and to escape enough to find out what that is. And also the excuses around like why we can't jump off that cliff and do the thing we want to do or at least take the first step because the fact is when you jump off the cliff, you have no idea where you're going. You just know you're leaving where you are, which is all you need, really. Move to a different city. Doesn't matter, you know, where you're going or what you're going to find. Like, just that step in and of itself will lead you to the next one. But, but this whole, like, I know I've said this on the podcast before, that courage is not the absence of fear. It's fear walking. If you're waiting for the right time, if you're thinking that the time to jump will be one in which there won't be any sort of domino effect from you leaving, you are kidding yourself. I remember making a decision several years ago to change drastically a familial relationship that I had. I was basically opting out of what had been perpetuated over the course of my entire life. I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm out. Maybe I'll come back in a different way. But at the moment, that relationship in that sense is going to cease to exist. And I remember telling my fam my other family members, hey, I have a feeling that this is sort of going to be like me defecting or me leaving my post in the army or something. And when that happens, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It affects everyone else on the team, in the family, in the group. The entire dynamic shifts. You know, it's like you're playing a big game of Jenga, and is that what it's called? <laughs> so, I think so. And you pull out the bottom piece, and the rest of it falls. That's what happens when you opt out. You don't get to, like, walk silently away and have nobody notice or have nobody be angry at you or nobody be disappointed or you don't get to just silently walk away and not be afraid or not fear where the money is going to come from or wonder if your kids are going to be mad at you down the line for making a decision that you feel you have to make. It, that, that type of change, that type of transformation doesn't exist ever, ever. Ask anybody. Ask anybody who's made a big change or shift in their life. 
It's by definition a challenge. That's why we don't do it. And there will be, especially for those of you who listen to this show, I know you guys are smart. I know you guys think critically, but that can sometimes be used against yourself. You know, sometimes I think the smartest among us stay in shitty relationships the longest because we're really good at talking circles around anything. We're really good at logically making explanations and excuses for things. So please don't use your intelligence to waste your life away. If you need advice or some encouragement, send me an email. I'll help you through it. I'm sure everyone else on this podcast is cheering you on from afar. But this is the time Use this energy and this anger and this space and this time to do something. This, it just gets harder the longer you wait. You know, you just, it's like quicksand. The longer you wait to make the change, the further and further and further and further you get sucked in. You get sucked into other people's expectations. You get sucked into your own fears. If not now, when? Okay. That's all I'm going to say today. Please enjoy this episode with Diana. Please, please check out her website, sustainabledish.com and sacredcow.info and support this work. And send her a message and say thank you because it's important and it's hard and nearly everything is working against her to spread this message of common sense. If you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. If you sign up as a patron, uh, there are several different um, tiers. And depending on in which tier you join, you can get access to lots of perks. I have a, an exclusive WhatsApp group chat that I believe has two more spots. I increased the limit um, of that group to 30, but I'm really going to stop it at that because I want to be fair to those inside. But there are two spots left at the $10 a month level. So if you would like to join that, great way to get connected to other podcast listeners, help feel more motivated to make whatever change you want to make in your life um, and inspire each other. So uh, that's at the $10 level. I also just today officially announced the Millennials Guide Book Club. I'm going to plan on doing this probably four times a year. The first one's going to be in August. If you are a patron at the $10 and up level, you are automatically a part of it. I'm totally cool for those of you that don't want to become a long-term patron on a monthly basis. If you just want to sign up uh, for one month in August by August 1st and then opt out in September, just because you want to be a part of the book club, I'm totally cool with that. But you have to be a patron at the $10 level in order to do that. If for any reason you can't do that, um, become a patron, but you still want to become, uh, still want to be in the book club, uh, send me a message or email me, anyakotz at gmail.com or on Instagram. Uh, we can probably work something out where you just like PayPal or Venmo me the $10 um, and then you can be a part of the book club for that month. So I, each time I'm going to pick a theme, uh, 
August's theme will be the planet and humans' role within it. Um, and so I'm going to pick four books that uh, guests on this podcast have recommended. Um, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn is one of the ones, uh, is the book that uh, Diana today <laughs> recommends, and that's on the list. Um, the other ones are The Overstory, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, and Call of the Reed Warbler. Uh, so patrons, again, at the $10 and up level, get to vote on what book they want. Um, if you are a patron or you become a patron, please make sure to get your vote in by July 10th. We will pick a book. We will have one month in August to read the book. And then I will schedule a live Zoom call for everyone in the club, including myself, and we'll discuss it. I'll probably come up with, um, once we choose the book, sort of like specific questions or themes uh, that we can focus on or just bring those up um, before we have the Zoom call for everyone to think about. So that should be really fun and a way to see each other face to face and discuss some cool writing. Um, so again, uh, there's lots of other stuff too. If you become a patron, there's t-shirts and, um, uh, a playlist that I create. And, uh, I think anytime I read a book, I'm going to post a book review. I just finished three women. Holy shit. So good. Very horror rapport material. Uh, I think Aaron and I are going to do a bonus episode discussing three women. So it'll be like the horror rapport version of the book club. Um, I'll get to horror rapport in a second, but, uh, yeah, lots of other perks on Patreon. Um, I even have some more in the works. I think I might for patrons. Uh, I'm not sure at what level yet, but maybe release some of my, uh, favorite spots from camping around the country and in Canada. Um, little like amazing, cool spots that we found with beavers and muskrats and such, uh, to share with just an exclusive list of people because really good camping spots are hard to find. Um, and even a lot of the apps that are out there are more like I parked here overnight and nobody bothered me, but not necessarily a, a place to kind of hole up for four or five days with a river and all of that good stuff. Uh, so anyway, there are more ideas in the works. I will continue to uh, release and offer more perks for my patrons. But in the meantime, there's still a lot already. So patreon.com slash Anya Cuts. Um, the other way that you can support the podcast is to go into iTunes, hit subscribe, leave some stars and a review. I know I say this every week, um, but that's because I know there are so many more of you that listen to this show than have ever rated or reviewed the podcast. And it helps quite a bit in terms of just getting the podcast to show up when you search for it. Um, and also when I reach out to guests that are maybe a little bit more well-known, um, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go to iTunes and be like, does anyone listen to this show? And is it good? Um, and the way that they're going to figure that out or make that assessment or judgment is by your reviews and ratings. So the review can be a word. It can be just amazing or terrible or um, Anya told me to do this. No, don't do that. That'd be weird. <laughs> but it can be really short and it helps a great deal and in the end helps you guys because it will help me get bigger uh, people on the podcast who don't have a ton of time and only want to do a show if it seems worth their while. Um, all of that to say... Another great way you can uh, support the show is just to share it with a friend. Do you have an episode that really inspired you? Was there an episode that you think would inspire someone else? Um, send it to them. Let them know. Post about it on Instagram. Tag me. All of that stuff is phenomenally helpful and, um, yeah, just really sort of like bolsters this community that I'd like to create, which in the end 
is the goal, not financial, not ego. I just want to have you all recognize that there are lots of you out there because I wasted so much time thinking that there was no one else in the world like me who shared my beliefs or values. And I really don't want anyone to make that mistake. So let's support each other. Um, as I mentioned, Horror Rapport, if you haven't given that a listen, that is my second podcast that I host with my friend Aaron. Um, each week we pick a topic that r- relates to sexuality and we discuss it. Um, we just did a two part Q and a episode. I believe, uh, Aaron's going to be releasing the episode we recorded on power either today or tomorrow, which might have been the most intense show you've ever done. Um, but we really try to discuss sexuality and gender and power and all of those things in a much more nuanced taboo way than is often, um, found in the public realm. So it's basically the opposite of call her daddy. <laughs> if any of you know what that is, um, a friend of mine who uh, listens to horror rapport recently posted about how that was sort of like the antithesis and ho- of horror rapport and that people should listen to horror rapport instead, which I really appreciated. Um, and I had, I didn't really know what they were, but I went to check them out and I was like instantly horrified and had to click away because it was so disgusting and truly exactly what Aaron and I are trying to undo as far as, you know, relationships between men and women and having nuanced conversations. So that's Horapor, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. And you can find that podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I think there are about 15 episodes or so that we've released and many more to come. So, all right, I'm going to shut up. Uh, I am going to play you into this conversation with Diana with a Xavier Rudd song called Walk Away. <laughs> Cause we all need to walk the fuck away. Um, I remember playing this song a little over, no, not a year ago, a couple years ago now. Um, I just ended a shitty relationship and was really frustrated with myself and the world and really didn't want to waste any more time. And I was going to the Bombay Beach Biennale for the first time, uh, which is hard to explain briefly, but a really cool festival of art and eccentricity and environmentalism all wrapped up in one. Um, then I was going by myself and I didn't know anyone and I was going to take pictures. And I remember just being in my car, like driving out in the desert, uh, toward the Salton sea where the Biennale is blasting the song over and over and over and over again. I was trying to like imprint this message into my cells of, please walk away from this shit that doesn't serve you and don't look back. So if you're in that place and you need some encouragement to walk away from whatever bullshit you've been spinning, I highly recommend playing the song over and over and over again, preferably while driving through the desert in your car. Um, so I will catch you on the other end. Enjoy this conversation with Diana. Oh, 
cracks upon my feet Diana Rogers, who I have been trying to get on the podcast. I think you were in the first group of people I reached out to like a year and a half ago when I launched the podcast. Um, so you've been at the top of the list for a long time and I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I've been a follower of yours since, you know, definitely before the sacred cow project. Um, I was in the paleo world, like, I don't know, as of 12 years ago, I feel like really early on, um, Mm -hmm. and was really, I think my life was kind of changed and transformed at one of the Paleo FX conferences when Rob 
mentioned Alan Savory's TED Talk um, and just sort of had said to the audience casually, like, how many of you guys have seen this? And there were very few hands that went up. And he was like, this, that's required. Like, you have to go back. So I went back to my hotel room and watched that TED Talk, which was one of those moments where it's like, I feel like there are many of these in my life where I feel like I had a sense about something, but then you read something or watch someone talk about it and it like puts it into such beautiful context and <laughs> describes yeah. it much more eloquently than whatever the mismatch of like thoughts were in my head. So, um, yeah, I just feel like that moment and understanding that information was very transformational to me and then simultaneously frustrating because I feel like what the rhetoric and conversation was in the public realm was like, I, I feel like I want to shake people all the time because I just don't understand how there are so many misconceptions around what is good for us health-wise and up the planet. Um, so I would love to start with just hearing if you could just introduce the audience to you and, and who mm -hmm. you are. And, and even if there was a similar type of light bulb moment for you or, or like how you got initiated into this whole world. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I'm honored, um, that you're such a fan. Um, so I have, um, been living on organic farms for the last 18 years. Um, and my background really came to this from a health perspective, though. Um, as a kid, I was really sick and um, didn't find out that I had celiac disease until I was 26. But um, definitely it was my whole childhood um, that I was suffering from it. And I really just couldn't believe someone could be allergic to wheat because I ate it for every meal. <laughs> so, like, that's what people eat, you know, like, what are you talking about? Um, and, uh, so I was sort of always very interested in, um, trying to fix my blood sugar. I was constantly going to the doctor, um, demanding, you know, why am I feeling so diabetic? Why do I keep like, why am I not diabetic? Because I feel like, you know, I have to snack every hour, you know? Um, and so definitely, um, going gluten-free at first was a huge change for me, um, health wise, but I was still on this blood sugar roller coaster. And so it wasn't until I really started, uh, I, my first introduction to like whole foods, real foods was Weston A. Price because we were hosting a raw milk co-op at our farm. And I'm like, who are these crazy people coming in here? eating so much butter <laughs> and raw milk. <laughs> um, and, and then I went to a Wesley Price conference and it started all clicking for me. And I went right up to Sally Fallon and I'm like, I want to do, do this. I want to change my career. I had a long career in marketing, natural foods marketing before. Mm. And she said, well, you have to become an RD. And I was like, no, never. <laughs> I'm not going back to school no way. My first degree is in art and like it just the idea of going back to school for a graduate degree in science was really overwhelming. Um, but I found the nutritional therapy association, which, um, is very much aligned with Weston A. Price and has a great primer for, um, my launching pad into this whole world. So, uh, it was really life changing. I felt very confused before I went into that course because I, you know, would read a book on raw diets and everything sounded plausible, right? Every, you know, these people are very persuasive writers and I just didn't have the critical science skills I needed in order to sort of discern what was right versus, you know, not right. 
Um, and so NTA really helped me realize, you know, eating butter is okay. <laughs> um, all those sorts of things. Um, and then I did go back and do my RD, uh, registered dietitian, because I just felt like I wanted to be able to, um, do more writing and be, um, able to take insurance, which is huge. Mm. Um, you know, like why would someone go pay out of pocket for a hippie nutritionist when they can, uh, you know, go to some other one for free on their insurance plan or for a $20 copay or something like that. So it was important to me to get that. And I feel like it's really helped a lot. And, um, so yeah, so I'm, so that's the nutrition end of it. Um, I, so I, I first started, you know, e eating fats and then I learned about paleo through Rob Wolf's book and um, the paleo solution. And that was like totally life changing. Um, and my life went from like black and white to color. Um, I just couldn't believe I could like make it all the way to lunch without a granola bar in between. Um, yeah. It was amazing. It was liberating, like really liberating. Um, and so... So I started my practice and at first I was just talking about nutrition um, because I had, you know, always been like the wife of a farmer and like everything had been so farm related that I really was trying to carve out my own space. Um, but whenever I would post pictures of the sheep <laughs> um, or anything from the farm, people were asking tons of questions. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, everything we're growing at the farm is how I'm supposed to eat. And maybe I could be that nutritionist that, um, talks about that intersection between sort of paleo, um, and also, uh, farming ancestrally. And there's such a huge connection there. And I feel like it's such an easy, it's such an easy transition for people who already have that evolutionary biology, ancestral health buy-in with nutrition to then realize that they should be buying food that is grown in, in a way that works with nature. It's just, it just makes so much sense. Um, as opposed to ironically talking to people who produce this food that they should then eat, um, an ancestral way. That's actually a harder, a harder leap for folks to make. I've noticed. So I, I tend to go to nutrition conferences and talk about sustainability, but then I go to farmer conferences and talk about nutrition um, and, and again, that's, that's, a, it's a harder sell, um, for them. Uh, and so I wrote a couple of cookbooks and then I was just bugging Rob for so long that, uh, to help me, um, get this other book out. I mean, he's got a great microphone. Um, and so, you know, we started writing this book, but then what the health came out, um, and I just realized how powerful film is, especially with young people, and that's who I'm trying to reach. And so I put the book on hold for a little bit and just dove into producing this film, um, Sacred Cow, which will also come out around book time, maybe a little bit after. Um, and so really the the film is um, a big picture look at um, – why meat has been vilified, how it's a healthy food and how it can be grown in a better way. Um, and we also do a deep dive into ethics in the film. Uh, the book is a much more science-based, um, it's not a narrative book. It's a, you know, nonfiction book, but I do feel like I tried very hard to write it for somebody that, um, doesn't have a master's degree in soil science. Um, we have some really great graphics in there, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I did, I definitely wrote it for the person, you know, the person in mind that I wrote it for is somebody who's just, you know, they're concerned about their health and the environment. They want to make the right decision. They've heard that meat is bad for you. It's going to give you cancer. It's destroying the environment. And, you know, they're concerned about the ethical treatment of animals. Um, so this book, it addresses all of those concerns and, um, so that's it. Um, <laughs> and I should mention that I had another sort of life changing book. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Quinn. Mm, yes. Uh, the book <laughs> Ishmael. Yeah. 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 Um, that, that was another, like, you know, I would put that almost at the top of, uh, at paleo at like just you know, um, now paleo was new information for me. Ishmael was, and, and the books that followed were, um, synthesizing all the, all the things I had realized, um, after I was already sort of immersed in the ancestral template that I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how, how well he told this story. So I just thought I'd Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I always ask, I always ask everyone at the end of my podcast, like what's one book that like changed your life or that you would recommend to the audience. So you just kind of did it without me having to ask. (laughs) Um, so, okay. So let's break some of this down. Um, you know, I'm, there's sort of two angles I feel like to come at this with, there are those who are like, I'm not eating meat because they think it's unhealthy. I feel like I'm almost less like choose whatever diet you want honestly like you're it's 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 your call to do whatever you want to do for your body based on the research that you do what frustrates me and what um really gets me going is when people are not eating meat because they think that's the best choice for the environment um when it's clear from the research that i've done that that's basically the opposite of that um so i'd love if you could talk about like where do these two things intersect? Why are animals so important as far as a sustainable um, food system goes? And, you know, where is the link between, like, could we do this without eating the animals, right? Like, is there this way? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you get that question at all, but. Totally. Yes. Um, so a lot of times I'll explain to people how, you must have animals in order for, you know, any kind of healthy regenerative food system to exist um, because of their inputs. Um, and then a lot of times uh, they'll say, well, why eat them? So I actually, in the book, I start with nutrition. I talk about the fact that humans are omnivores. There's nutrients in meat that we or in animal products that we can't get anywhere else. Um, I have no problem if someone, you know, chooses whatever diet they want to choose. Um, I do have a little bit of a problem with parents feeding their kids a vegan diet because I feel like that's, um, there's a, there's a lot of cases of, of harm from that. Um, I think with enough animal products, someone who chooses to be vegetarian can probably do okay, but it seems from every angle that I've looked at it that, you know, adding some, uh, animal products, specifically seafood and red meat is just how is the optimal diet for humans. Um, I, I don't think supplements really cut it. Uh, so, so that's the case I make first. And, um, I talk about how the studies against meat are really observational studies that can't prove cause, 
Um, so the idea that, you know, meat causes heart disease or diabetes or obesity or cancer, or really just looking at these population studies and like, oh, those people got cancer and they happen to eat meat. It must be the meat. Um, you know, that's like equivalent to saying, you know, uh, ice cream intake goes up during warm weather and so do shark attacks. And so it must be the ice cream, you know, um, so once we, once we make the case that meat is a healthy food for humans, then I move into the environmental argument. The, um, you know, when you think of a grassland, Rob and I in the book have uh, a thought experiment that we take people through called Grass World. Good. I was going to um, ask you to right. elaborate on that. <laughs> okay. Have you, did, have you heard was, me talk about that I at ha- all? Or? Yeah. I was actually this morning on YouTube, I guess I found a presentation that you were doing where you went through all those different scenarios and I thought it was such a great yeah. way to understand it all. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting with, with Rob in Austin and, uh, oh no, we were in Virginia. We go to a lot of conferences together and we were working on this book, like every time we had time together. Um, and he was like, we need to think of something that kind of breaks it down to help people understand why biodiversity is important. Um, and, uh, like, I think that, um, in the paleo manifesto, John Durant does a really good job with the gorilla, um, you know, explaining, you know, these fiber bars weren't working for the gorilla, but then they went and got lettuce. Anyway, that's a, I really like how he wrote that. Um, so the idea with grass world is really to help illustrate for folks why animals are important and why, um, why you have to cull through them. You can't just rewild everything and just kind of let, let them be, um, and so even if you personally don't choose to eat them, it's important to allow other people to eat them. Um, so if you were to imagine a planet that was similar to earth, um, and you wanted to start a sustainable food system, but you want it just had soil, you know, nothing else. Um, you could, you could plant forest, um, but not a lot of food grows in forests. And so, um, you want to keep the soil secure. So you, you just plant some grass, you just start out with some grass just to kind of, you know, keep the soil in, in place. Um, but then, um, with just grass, the problem is, um, you come back a few years later and the grass is dead. Um, so what happens when you don't have animals mowing the grass and, um, biologically breaking it down and then pooping it out, you're not getting those extra nutrients back into the soil and, uh, the roots only will grow new roots when it's been, when it's been chopped, basically, that's why people mow their lawns, but then they also have to fertilize them. Um, and so the next experiment would be cow grass world. So you bring the cows in and they're eating the grass and they're pooping and the grass does amazing initially. Um, but the problem is without any predators around to keep the animals moving and, um, call them, you end up with you know certain patches overgrazed, other other patches undergrazed, um, and eventually all the grass dies and all the cows die because it, it all end up ends up getting overgrazed and there's too many cows and you're back to square one again. And so, once you introduce a predator like a wolf, now you've got as a, an equilibrium happening. So the cows are not overgrazing one patch too much because 
they have to keep on the move because they don't want to be like sitting ducks for the wolves. Um, they're bunched together and they're moving. And if you were to picture the Serengeti and a herd of wildebeest, that's that's how large animals on grasslands work. They they bunch together and they're constantly moving. Um, and that's because of the predator pressure. The other thing that this does is um, it prevents the grass from overgrazing, but it also helps keep their populations in check because they're being culled. Um, and so we can do that on ranches with electric fencing and with harvesting some of the animals. Um, and so by moving them frequently into new paddocks, um, you know, sometimes more than once a day, it just depends on where you are and the size of your paddocks and the size of your herd. Um, if you move them frequently, it allows the grass they were just on the day before to have a nice rest. Um, typically, they would rest that between 30 to 90 days, just depending on, on the location and the needs of the, of the land. Um, it keeps the animals healthier because they're not overgrazing certain areas. Uh, they're much less susceptible to parasite infections because the worms from one animal aren't then being transmitted to all the other animals through too much standing poop on the ground. Um, and so it's healthier land. That's how carbon gets sequestered in the soil is through the new root, gro new root growth. Um, and, and we can harvest those animals and eat them. And if we didn't harvest them and, and eat them, there would just be too many. And also who would, who would, how would these farmers make any money um, to manage the land too? So that's, that's one of the ideas with, um, or the, one of the flaws with rewilding, the idea of rewilding, you know, that we could just live in urban centers and then let nature kind of just do its thing. Um, there's, there's several flaws with that idea, but one is, you know, we just don't have the predators and um, the large tracts of land that we need in order for, you know, a system like the African Serengeti to come back. Um, and we've got a problem here. I live in Massachusetts with the wild deer population. Um, nobody wants hunters around here. And um, so the deer are taking over. They're eating um, a lot of the habitat for ground nesting birds. Um, there's a lot of diseased deer running around. They're causing car accidents. Um, and so it's all because we got rid of their natural predator. So that's... That's grass world. <laughs> awesome. Oh, but I, but I should take it one step further, actually. Yeah. Um, the, the, the problem with just cows, wolves, and grass is that you only have three things. And so what if um, a virus affected all the cattle? Then you've got all these wolves and just grass, and you've got a problem. Um, so uh, healthy ecosystems, the healthiest ecosystems, have multiple species of animals, multiple species of plants, so that if, um, you know, the population of cows dips down, there's another ruminant that can come in, um, multiple uh, types of predators, multiple, you know, habitats for different animals. So what you want is in, a, in the healthiest ecosystems have the most life, most variety of life. Right. Can we expand a little bit more on, you know, I think one of the the problematic misconceptions that I read in nearly, I think like Jonathan Safran Foer just put out an article talking about how, you know, something about coronavirus and like the end of meat is here or something. 
And like the one, the one shocking, I mean, everything in it, I could break the whole thing down, but one of the most sort of like vile points that I feel like he makes and so many other people make is that they talk about meat as one thing, as if all meat is created equal. So the conventionally raised cow, grain fed cow is the same as like the yak grazing in rural Colorado down the street from me. Like these are two, these are apples to oranges in two different food groups. Um, So I'd love to talk about, like, you know, making the case for the fact that, yes, conventionally raised meat is, it seems, harmful to the environment, whereas sustainably, regeneratively raised meat is good for the environment. Um, So where where is that distinction and, like, what is it about the soil that's such a key player here? Why is the soil so important as far as sustainability goes? Sure. Um, I actually wrote a letter to the editor about that, and I'm really hoping it gets published. Um, I had so many problems with with that article. Um, and in fact, that's what I was just recording this morning with Rob. We were going off for two hours, point by point, um, combing Amazing. through that. I'm, yeah. So um, <laughs> I really thought a lot about that one. Um, and there's several things in there. I mean, first of all, he's citing like YouTube. Um, or I'm sorry, Facebook, um, like he wasn't actually citing science. He was citing, you know, his own website. He was citing, um, other articles that weren't citing things. Um, he's a philosopher. He's not an expert in food systems or human nutrition. Um, but yeah, the idea that all meat is the same is, is definitely a problem. And I think that it's equivalent to saying we shouldn't wear clothes because of sweatshops. So all humans should just never wear clothes. You know, do we absolutely need clothes? I guess not, but clothes are nice and they can be made in a better way, right? Um, and so, uh, but I am a lot more nuanced as far as even, you know, factory farmed cows versus grass-fed cows because there's, it's not black and white and there's a lot of gray area in between there. Um, I actually think the worst type of meat that's produced is actually, um, industrial pork and chicken. Uh, those animals are a hundred percent grain fed and a hundred percent indoors in horrific conditions, their entire lives. Um, and also nutritionally it's inferior. Both of those meats are inferior to red meat. So if someone's in a grocery store and they're looking for like a healthy and, you know, uh, slightly better option than, you know, among, you know, if, if the choice is chicken, pork, or beef, I would say choose beef. Um, a lot of people think that feedlot finished cattle live on a feedlot their entire lives. And it's actually, that's not the case. Um, most, uh, all cattle are actually raised on grass and start out in a calf cow, uh, ranch, um, with their moms, um, on grass. And then they're either finished on grass or they're finished in a feedlot. Um, but even when they're on a feedlot, they're not a hundred percent indoors and only eating grain. A lot of the feed that goes into those, um, the finishing is things that would go to waste if they weren't passed through a cow and turned into protein. So they're getting, um, corn husks from the ethanol industry, for example, Um, so things that would emit greenhouse gases and just sit in a lump if, um, we didn't give it to cattle. So really only about 10% of their overall diet is grain. Um, 
Now that's not, I'm not saying that, um, feedlots are awesome. I'm just saying it, there's just, there's nuance here. Um, but not all grass fed beef is amazing either because there's, um, there's different ways of grazing animals. So if they're, um, all out in one paddock the entire time and not moved frequently, like I was explaining with the electric fencing, um, which is how most grass fed beef is produced. Um, that leads to soil erosion and overgrazed, undergrazed areas, parasite issues. Um, it's, it's not the right way to raise cattle. So just because something is grass fed, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, um, regenerative or that much better really than, um, you know, uh, a cow that maybe, you know, was raised in a great way and then fed some corn at the end of its life, you know, that was locally produced and, you know, um, I actually have been to a couple of feedlots that are not that bad, really. I mean, the, they're just like eating a bunch of corn and corn husks and, and things like that. Um, and, it, you know, it's they're smaller scale. So um, but in general, um, usually uh, feedlot beef is 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 not, um, unfortunately, um, a very humane process. But to say that we shouldn't eat meat because of feedlots is, again, like saying we shouldn't wear clothes because of sweatshops. Um, so um, so truly regeneratively grazed um, meat is far superior to, to you know, any kind of CAFO, um, and that's confined animal feeding operation, uh, where the animals are moved frequently, the soil gets built, carbon gets sequestered, and it's actually um, a net positive on the environment. And so that's what we should be going for. So in terms of all of these like statistics that we read or hear about in regard to, I would say probably one of the biggest ones is like the cow fart methane thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like where is this data coming from that's saying that meat is harmful to the environment? And is this just a case of overgeneralizing what type of meat we're looking at? Um, like what, what, mm -hmm. where's the disconnect there? <laughs> Yeah, so there's a couple reasons why there's a disconnect. Um, one is, and the biggest one, is that um, ruminants like cattle and moose and, and deer, um, they are emitting methane as, as part of a biological breakdown. Um, and I actually, um, your viewers can't see this, but I've got this cattle carbon cycle poster behind me, um, which is actually, I have, I have that, um, at sacredcow.info that folks can, can check out. Um, so biological methane is part of a methane, uh, part of a carbon cycle. So the cows are emitting methane. It goes up into the atmosphere and after about 10 years, it breaks down into water and carbon dioxide. The water comes down as part of the water cycle um, as rain. Um, the carbon dioxide then is taken up by the plants. The plants respirate out the O2, the oxygen, and then the carbon gets um, absorbed by the plants and leaked down into through their roots as little sugars that the bacteria in the ground then exchanges nutrients for those sugars. So the plant's actually feeding the soil microbes and fungi in the soil sugar in exchange for other nutrients it needs. So the fungi are out there and they're mining all the rocks and minerals. It's a really amazing process. Um, 
that is very, very different than extracting ancient locked carbon in the form of fossil fuels and pumping them out. Um, that is a one-way cycle, a one-way street that is not part of a cycle, actually. And, um, and that's the big problem. And so biogenic methane is compared to fossil fuels, again, is like apples to oranges. It's completely different. So we don't have more ruminants in North America than we did when the bison were here. We just have less bison and more cattle. Um, but it's, it's, there's no more methane happening than there was, basically, um, before we wiped out all the bison. So that's number one. Um, number two is there was a big study that came out um, or a big paper that came out from um, the FAO that was equating um, the transportation industry to um, the cattle industry and saying that that cows are emitting 14.5% of um, greenhouse gas emissions and the transportation industry is 14%. But what, how they were doing their methodology was they were doing a full life cycle analysis. So a life cycle analysis is all of the inputs. So the feed, the transportation, everything that's included in um, producing steak. Um, but for transportation, those numbers don't exist. So they were just looking at tailpipe emissions. So they weren't looking at you know, uh, the building of the planes, um, the building of the cars, the transporting those cars from Japan to the U.S. They weren't looking at any of that. They were just looking at tailpipe emissions. So if you just look at emissions from actually, it's not the tailpipe of the cow. It's the it's the mouth that the cows um, belch methane. They don't really fart it. Mm. Um, th that only makes five percent. Of, of emissions compared to 14% um, when we look at the transportation industry. Um, but again, it's a biological process. It's not a one-way street. So those, those are the two big misconceptions when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. And isn't it also that like we're looking at this in such a vacuum or like with blinders on? Because to me, the methane output feels like it should be somehow directly correlated to like carbon sequestration where the transportation industry there's no part of that where if we're putting animals on the land and there's like a net positive for the environment then to me like why are we even talking about <laughs> the methane yeah so there's there are a couple of studies that have just come out um within the last several years that are showing that um cattle that are managed well can be a net carbon gain. Um, there's not a lot of studies on that, and um they're trying to do more um and so uh yeah people are you know people are looking for the villain they're looking for that one scapegoat and um that's actually one of the words one of the titles for the book um mm -hmm. if we didn't call it sacred cow would have been scapegoat um we're really stressed out about our health about the environment and instead of tackling the real villain which is processed food and big ag it's much easier to to actually scapegoat, to, to put all of our blame and shame on cattle because we don't like the idea of eating meat. And so, um, you know, meat can absorb this because it's so powerful. 
It, um, it represents, you know, wealth and power and masculinity and blood and death. Um, it sort of has all of those things wrapped together. And because of that, it can, it's actually has become the most polarizing food in our, in our culture. Yeah. Um, and talking a bit more about like the systemic issues here, like I'm always curious, is this just ignorance that's fueling this scapegoating or are there sort of private interests at work um, that we may, those who are thinking they're doing the right thing are, are not aware of? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's legit people who are profiting off this. Um, certainly the, the fake meat companies. Um, but I, I do think at their heart, they think they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we definitely have this cultural bias um, against meat and against killing. And um, a lot of that comes from religion. Um, in the Western world, it comes from the Seventh-day Adventists largely. Um, and I did a deep dive into the origins of the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, it was this basically this woman had these visions, um, which could have just been weird seizures that she was having from mercury poisoning, but she, she thought it was the voice of God and, um, and, you know, alcohol and caffeine and meat were seen as, um, stimulating, uh, ungodly passions. Um, and that was very bad. And so, um, in order to temper sexual desire, um, no meat was to be consumed. Um, so, um, interestingly, the dietetics and the nursing, um, professions were founded by Seventh-day Adventists. Mm. Um, and so there's a definite, um, feeling that meat is bad. Um, and it's, it's very much like how we, uh, it's very tandem to how we look at sex. Um, you know, in the Victorian era, we, um, we put skirts on chairs because we didn't want to see the legs of the chairs. Um, and it, sex became like a very dirty private thing that wasn't out in the open. You couldn't talk about it, but it's a necessity. Uh, the same thing happened with meat. We removed ourselves from meat production. We, um, it became something that we didn't have to deal with on a regular basis. Um, you know, we also farm out all death. So we, we don't, you know, care for grandma in the home anymore. We farm that out to nursing homes. Um, and so the whole idea of death or eating meat, it has become a very, you know, dirty, taboo, um, barbaric thing that, that we should avoid. Um, like I even see this in the health industry with all these longevity conferences. It's like, we must figure out how to live forever. And, um, I think our fear of death is actually at the heart of a lot of, um, our bias against meat. Um, people see death as the end of a line instead of a piece of the circle and understanding that, um, all life has to come out of death. Uh, so that not to get too deep on you. No, that was amazing. um, Yeah. 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 Um, and do we, do you think, cause I see this, I feel like maybe another part of this too is, you know, scapegoating and like projecting blame and responsibility Mm -hmm. outward. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are like outside of this, 
like, even if we were to raise meat sustainably and regeneratively, like, do we have an overpopulation or consumption issue? Like, is that part of it? Are, are we eating, do, are we eating too much meat, uh, to begin with? Like, would there be enough mm-hmm. food to go around, um, in a more mm-hmm. sustainable context? Yeah, that that was a lot of questions in one yeah, question. Well, I tend <laughs> um, to do and that. we do tackle all of that in the book. Yeah. Um, and so if I don't answer them all, we definitely go through all of that in the book. So as far as like how much meat should one eat or how much are we eating, I looked it up and um, Americans are eating about uh, two ounces of beef per person per day. That's I don't think too much. Um, I think there's a perception that, you know, every American is sitting down to a 72 ounce T-bone, you know, tomahawk steak every single night. And that's just not what's happening. Um, we're not eating enough protein as a culture. Um, we're, we're spending less on meat. We're, we've over the last 10 years, we've spent, um, 50% less on meat, but we've doubled our spending on processed foods. Um, and so, you know, the big the big issue again is ultra processed foods. It's not meat that's the problem. Um, so there's that. Uh, and again, I think um, protein is the 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 RDA for protein is is really just the the minimum amount to avoid disease. It's not the optimal amount. Uh, so we go through in the book what the optimal amount of of it protein should be. And I think the majority of protein that people eat should be from animals. Um, you know, when you look at, you know, products like Beyond Burger, that's twice as expensive per pound as organic grass-fed beef. Um, so especially when we're talking about people who are food insecure or don't have the luxury of, you know, spending, um, I can't even remember how much it was per pound. It was like $10 per pound. I can't remember. Um, but I looked it up. Uh, you know, for, for folks that are on a limited budget, real meat is one of the most nutrient dense per dollar foods that you can actually buy. Um, and we also know that kids who are food insecure do much better when they get more meat in their diet. They do better academically, behaviorally, and physically when they get more food, when they get more meat in their diet. So meat is a good thing. I don't think that um, we necessarily should be limiting our meat intake at all. Um, And so then we have to look at the system and say, you know, can our system support this? And I actually go through those numbers in the book. Um, for the U.S., I, I I don't have the numbers for the world, and I don't necessarily think it has to be beef either. Like it could, my, maybe it's camels in certain parts, or or goats, or you know, and we um we have a lot of farm interns right now from Peru, and guinea pigs make a lot of sense for them. You know, especially if you don't have refrigeration and you want just a one meal thing, and um you can just like. You know, you you don't have a, a deep freezer for a half a cow, but you can certainly just, you know, a guinea pig is a meal right there. <laughs> um, so I think it just depends on the culture and it depends on, you know, what's best suited for that environment. Um, but I so for the U.S., I did go through the numbers for beef production. We have a lot of underutilized and non-used um, grasslands in the U.S., and um, we totally have enough land to finish all the cattle on on grass, um, if we wanted to do that. 
right now, um, 85% of the, of the animals we're raising for beef are on grass right now that can't be cropped. And so that's a, that's a big thing, um, that a lot of people don't understand is that most agricultural land actually can't be cropped. We can't just grow corn and soy everywhere. Um, when we fly over the United States, when you're flying over the Midwest and you see all the green squares and everything, that's prime cropland. But when you think of um, a lot of other places, uh, you know, Arizona, for example, it's more arid. That's really um, not prime cropland. And, um, you know, they're artificially pumping in tons of nitrogen fertilizers and, you know, depleting reservoirs to, to temporarily make it cropland, but it's not best suited for cropland. Uh, and so when you look at the available, when you look at the overall globe, uh, the amount of arable land, of cropland, is only about a third of our overall um, agricultural land. Most of our agricultural land is actually best suited for grazing animals only. And so um, if we just manage them in a better way and used some of the land that we currently have in the U.S. for uh, for CRP, which is a um, protection program that's it's not technically right now allowed to be grazed, if we open that up for grazing, if we improved our grazing techniques, um, we definitely could finish all of our beef cattle population um, on grass. Yeah. So what would if we were to scale this? um like what would be the sort of next steps in helping to do this? Is it like we need more farmers, we need funding? I'm assuming it's like all of these things, but mm-hmm. how how do we get there? Like what about the predators and the wolves and like there feel it feels like in every aspect there's a problem, you know, in terms of what we have working for us. So like what are those different pieces and how do you sort of see us taking those first steps? Well, um, removing crop subsidies would be a huge first step um, because that's really just unfair right now. And it's keeping, you know, things like chicken at a 99 cents a pound or whatever, you know, you can get it at these cheap grocery stores on sale. I mean, that's disgusting. Um, uh, but that's only possible because of cheap oil and, and um, subsidized grain prices. Um, we don't have a problem with food production. Um, hunger is a political issue. It is not a food production issue. Um, it's a distribution issue. Uh, uh, what we have a problem with is producing nutritious food. Um, we're, we have a problem with producing, you know, iron and B12 and protein. And so we should be looking to ha- at how to maximize that. Uh, but we don't have incentives right now to be able to do that. So there's, um, you know, there's great organizations like the Savory Institute that are training farmers to do um, regenerative techniques. So we need um, more of the uh, colleges and universities to um, embrace regenerative agriculture. Um, it's a little tricky because a lot of them are land-grant universities and they're sponsored by big ag. And so... Um, there's not much of an incentive for them um, to be able to uh, really change their ways. A lot of professors, I've argued with a lot of animal uh, science professors who, you know, just think that this is this is nuts, but they're they're set in their ways and, you know, they don't like to hear new information. Um, so we need 
we need more young people. And I, I think it's going to look less like a university type education and more like an alternative. And I, I think universities are and colleges are on their way out anyway, because they're all going to go broke. <laughs> um, and they're kind of a ripoff, um, especially when, you know, the skills that you need in order to become a farmer are largely hands-on skills um, that you can learn by just mentoring. Uh, and then we need we need access to land. Um, that's a huge problem for most of the young farmers that I know is just being able to farm places. And so if we had rules where, you know, every community had to have a common um, which is how it was in New England. There's large tracts of, of grassy areas called the commons in, in a lot of the towns. And that's, you know, that was for everyone to be able to use it collectively to graze their animals. Um, so we need to, we need to look at ways to preserve um, land for agriculture. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people are, you know, moving out of New York City, for example, right now because of COVID. Um, and as we have more people able to, you know, work from home just because of the Internet and everything, um, rural areas are being, you know, gentrified by people wanting their five acres and a barn and a house, but they're not actually using it for anything meaningful. Um, so again, I think, um, you know, incentivizing them, um, to, you know, give some land to farmers to get them started would be really great. There's a lot of startup costs that are really overwhelming to young people. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunities. Um, and then I think it's, we as a culture need to, um, have a lot more respect for people who live in rural areas. There needs to be less polarization. Um, you know, there's a lot of stigma that uh, farmers are like backwards and, you know, stupid. And we need to really uh, change that too. And I wonder if, um, you know, as universities collapse and as we understand the need for more decentralized regional food production, if uh, folks who are food producers actually become the next like rock star, like it, like we take that celebrity away from chefs a little bit and give it more to cool, hip farmers instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I talked to Bobby about this quite a bit when he was on like this problem of like, how do you approach someone who's, let's say, like a fourth generation farmer, you know, they're being subsidized by the government. Like there's such, I mean, it goes back to, I guess, to what you were talking about in terms of death, but this sort of grief of, wow, we've really fucked up and and now it's time to do something new. But to sort of get over that hurdle of like admitting you were wrong about a thing. I mean, of course, this can exist in all aspects of our life, but I feel like that must be a huge hurdle is to change people's minds about something that they've just assumed was the right course of action for so long. Yeah. And it's also really important in these small communities. And I don't think a lot of urban people understand this, but, um, to go against convention in a small rural community is a, is social death. Um, and so we need to respect that and not just like march in as like 
you know, I've got the solution and you've been doing it all wrong all along. That's, that's not going to help at all. So, um, you know, one of the people I filmed with in England, James Rebanks, um, who wrote a great book called the shepherd's life. Mm. Uh, he is really an advocate for rural culture and supporting rural culture. Um, and making sure that, for example, the teachers in the local areas are from that area and not, you know, trying to teach the kids that, you know, farming is dirty and backwards and the only sign of progress is for you to move off your farm and go get a suit and work in a bank. Um, because that's, that's how he experienced education growing up. Um, but he, um, he's very humble and, and it was interesting as we were filming him, he's like, don't, don't just film me, film everybody. I, I want like, I don't want to be singled out, you know? Um, and so you know, he's starting to learn about more regenerative practices and slowly working with farmers, you know, it, it, that are his peers. Um, and I think that that's a much better way to go instead of, um, you know, just having these outsiders come in and I mean, it's the whole poverty Inc trap. Um, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but, mm. um, by Michael Matheson Miller, who's um, been a friend and consulting with me on, on the filming of, of my um, project. But, um, you know, the worst thing you can do is just think you have all solutions and just go into a community without, you know, having lived there for a couple of years and really understanding what unique problems that community has and what, what do the people of that community respond to. Mm. So I'm curious what your, I feel like I sort of, go back and forth between feeling optimistic, optimistic and totally frustrated and hopeless, um, about all of this. And I know you've, you're so intricately involved in these worlds now. Um, and I'm wondering like, how do, you know, where does your sort of motivation come from? And do you feel as if you sort of have to come face to face with a lot of like sadness and grief around all of this or, is that sort of outweighed by the possibility of, of what we might be able to do? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's definitely been a huge challenge to do this work because, you know, um, I'm not verified on Instagram. I'm not crushing it because I'm not telling people how to get their magical six pack abs um, and so that's, that's hard. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's the right thing to do. And, um, I think people need to hear this message and, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I've heard that um, artists in general are are the most fearful of death because they're the ones that want to leave something um, like a legacy um, and make sure that, you know, what whatever that they created is like a stamp on the globe. Um, and so maybe I'm that way um, because I, I see myself as an artist. Um, I just think that, you know, we're here once and why would you just spend your life doing something shitty just to make money? And it, why would you do that when you can actually, you know, do something that, um, improves things? So, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I agree. I feel like that's a huge message of this podcast. So um, I I am really grateful for you to come on uh, this show. I, we just had a couple of people visit us here, these two kids, 24 and 27, um, who listen to my podcast, my partner's podcast, and they're like super passionate about all of this. And we're so excited to hear that I was interviewing you. And they both felt, and I think I agree, that I think we're really ripe to hear this information now. And I I feel like your book and movie um, will hopefully, crossing my fingers, be the, the jumping off point to where people really like get interested in this and passionate about it. Because I don't know if not now when. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, you know, if, when when coronavirus first happened, it was scary because the news just seemed no one wanted to talk about anything else. But um, as I've been watching, you know, the, the meat shortages and we're going to see crop shortages, too, um, just because the labor we're not going to have the labor to harvest everything this summer. We just haven't seen mm. it yet because things aren't ready to be harvested. Mm. Um but, uh, you know, I, our, our farm, our vegetable and meat CSA are sold out. Um, we've, we've never had better business. Everyone that I talk to who is a local meat producer that sells direct to consumers is sold out um, or doing, you know, better than they've ever done ever before. Um, and so and a lot of the other things we talk in our, about in our book, like keeping your body healthy um, not being a burden financially on society, you know, saving money and, and not just spending everything and going into major debt. Um, you know, a lot of those things that, that Rob and I as sort of like pseudo preppers and, and, and like doomsday people that are like always ready for the end of the world. Yeah. Um, like all of that stuff is actually happening now. And, and people like, they don't have to just take it for granted about meat. They actually have to face the fact that, um, our industrial ag system is broken and it's actually impacting them, but there's, um, you know, there's the solution is not like that New York times end of meat article. It is not, um, just stick your head in the sand and, you know, eat kale. It is like, let's, let's actually think about this in a very deep way uh, instead of a, a simple and, um, naive way and really get into the nuance of this and see if we can um, make a change. Agreed. Um, thank you again. Where can people find you to learn more about your work and these projects? Sure. Um, I'm on Instagram at sustainable dish and I have two websites. Sustainable dish is more of my nutrition practice. And then I have sacredcow.info, which is dedicated to the book and the film um, the book is, is, uh, right now available for pre-order online on your, at your favorite, uh, online seller. Um, we also have like cool t-shirts and stuff like that on the website. We have some really great pre-order bonuses, um, including, um, original footage from the film that, um, that are extras that I'm, that I'm giving out, um, for anyone who pre-orders, um, because we really want this book to hit the New York times list and, uh, pre-orders pre-orders are the best way, um, for us to be able to do that. Uh, and then folks can find Rob Wolf at robwolf.com and he's Das Rob Wolf on Instagram. Awesome. Thanks so much again. <laughs> Thank you. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. 
As I mentioned a million times, but I will mention again, please head over to sustainabledish.com or sacredcow.info and do whatever you can to educate yourself and support Diana and Rob in this very, very vital, important work. Uh, again, if you'd like to support the podcast and get access to perks like a WhatsApp group chat and a book club and playlists and t-shirts, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, one free way you can support the show is to go into iTunes. Do it right now. Go to your phone. Hit subscribe. Scroll down a little bit to the end of the episodes. Hit star some stars, however many you'd like to leave me, and just write a review. Takes five seconds. I could probably sit here and just be silent for 30 seconds while you all do that, but that would probably be obnoxious. But that really is how, how quick it is to do. So if you find this podcast valuable, if you've been listening for a while, um, and you'd like to support in a free and easy way, leaving a review and some stars on iTunes is definitely the way to do that. Or, as I mentioned, please share an episode with your friends, send a link to someone you care about, post on social media, and tag me at Anya.Kotz or the podcast, which is at, I always fuck up this acronym, it's a Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, pod, M-G-S-W, pod. <laughs> Um, if you don't follow that account, by the way, I just basically post, um, a quote and a graphic each time there's a new episode. So that's a really good way to keep informed, um, around when new episodes come out and also an easy way to share them with your followers if you so wish to. Um, that's all. I'm going to get back into the woods as quickly as possible because I can't take it anymore. But I will reemerge soon. I've got three podcasts in the can that I am so excited to bring all of you. I feel like I've just been really thrilled. Actually, that's a lie. I've always been really thrilled with the conversations that I've been having, but it feels really good when like a whole chunk of them occur together. Um, and I really have to thank all of you for supporting the show and having this audience grow because it's undoubtedly helped me reach more people, not just listeners, but the guests I have on as well. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just listening to the show, honestly, is a huge help and makes me feel amazing. Even if you're just like a number on a screen <laughs> somewhere out in the world, it's amazing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for using your very valuable time to spend these few hours with me every week. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song called The Gardener by Holly Aerosmith. I've played at least one of her songs on here before, but the lyrics are beautiful. Her album, A Dawn I Remember, is stellar. I really recommend listening to the whole thing, which you can find on Spotify. Um, but The Gardener speaks very specifically and eloquently, I think, about a lot about what Diana and I talked about in regard to humans' role in this whole planetary environmental thing, um, how, you know, life feeds into life and death produces life, etc. So listen to the song, listen to the lyrics, check out Adon I Remember on Spotify. Um, she's awesome. Thank you all again. Love you. Talk to you next time. Clouds rolling down the valley where the hills are green and yellow flowers grow. All the
Oh. 